0: Moyles. Uh, this is my full-time job. This is what I do. I'm a writer, teacher, speaker. I travel the country doing Christian ministry, uh, teaching theology. I don't look that old. This is my 35th year of active full-time ministry, writing, teaching, and speaking. I started in the eighth grade teaching Bible studies, and I have not stopped. I absolutely love it. I've now got uh, Yeah, I'm not going to run you through the bio, a couple master's degrees in theology working on my THD, and this is all I want to do. I spent 20, almost six years in the Air Force. Uh, As a rocket scientist, you can actually now say that you know one, Um, mostly doing satellite systems design and engineering and things like that. So I was never a chaplain, I was never a teacher, I was never in AETC or at the academy. Uh, This is all a God thing after retirement. So uh, I retired a couple years ago after 20, almost six years uh, as a colonel out of NORAD and decided why would I go back to Seattle? Have a house that's paid for, but if I look at the cost of living, the traffic, the conservative values that I respect, the everything, weather, Colorado Springs pretty much has Seattle beat in every respect. (laughs) So I think I'll stay. And I decided to stay and then let God kind of do whatever he does. And I'm never sure what he does or what he's going to do. I always loved teaching. I always loved speaking. I always loved theology. I always loved this kind of an environment or a forum where I can share some thoughts and take some questions and answers. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. Um... And we prayed through this and talked through this. Do I go back and be an IT contractor and wear a different t-shirt and do the same job? You all know what I mean by that. Uh, Do I go back as a civilian? Do I, uh, I, what's this look like? And our prayer was, is there a full-time job here? Am I gonna go be a writer, teacher, speaker and be sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring? Or is there actually 40 hours a week somewhere hidden behind this? Is it a desire or is it a calling to write, teach, and speak full time? My first month, July of 2017, that was my first month. I did 29 talks in 27 days in 14 states. This is an answer to prayer in an odd way. You want to speak full-time? You want to speak 365 days a year? The need is there. The desire is there for good theological teaching or preaching in this kind of form. And I've been through Focus, Summit, Navigators, Young Life, Compassion International, Youth with a Mission, you name it. And I've spoken with all of them. And I love it. And this is what I enjoy doing. I hope you enjoy it, too. We're going to talk about some serious stuff and we're going to talk about some fun stuff because I want to do both Um, it's been a tough year for me I'll be honest with you Um, it has not been a good year for me I was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer December 9th 1999 what's the first question anyone has how long five years maybe six with aggressive treatment maybe six years had my first brain surgery on my first wedding anniversary, April 29th, 2001. I've since had many more, as you've heard. I've essentially had five tumors removed. I've had four reconstructive surgeries. I've done chemotherapy 29 times. I've done radiation 42 times. I started Avastin infusions yesterday. That's for spinal cord tumors. The cancer has spread from my brain to my spinal cord. Um, all of my tumors, until this spread to the spinal cord, which was news to us just last week, I just learned of that, have been in the right frontal lobe. So the right frontal lobe, of my brain, was removed in 2008. Actually explains a lot <laughs> once you get to know me a little better. Um, and that's primarily responsible for memory, personality, and language. So if you're looking at a right frontal lobe, illness, or injury, you are generally looking for things like short-term memory loss, linguistic difficulties, or personality deficits. Linguistic difficulties would manifest not an inability to speak or a stutter, but trouble putting sentences together, coming up with certain words. It could also be turning 46 or 7 or whatever I am. But that's the sort of thing that you're looking for. Short-term memory loss is a frequent symptom of right frontal lobe illness or injury and personality deficits, aggression, depression, mood swings, things of this nature. It's always amusing when I go in for my 90-day neuro-screening, which I do every three months. They do a full neuro exam, poked, prodded, labbed, and scanned in every way you can imagine. And some you probably shouldn't. And uh, come on, that was a little bit funny. (laughs) Wake you all up here. Okay, it's, I, I could tell a joke. I know clean jokes and I know good jokes. <laughs> Depends on which one you want. And in a room of chaplains, I would probably stick straight with the clean jokes, but I only know pirate jokes, and then I have to do the voices, and it's. <laughs> so I'm going to steer clear of the jokes for this morning, but we'll wake you up, no worries. Um, it's okay. It's interesting because they will always ask me if I have any short-term memory loss, any trouble coming up with whatever. They'll ask me what I had for breakfast, and I can't remember if I had breakfast. And, and they'll ask me uh, about linguistic difficulties. Obviously, I'm a full-time public speaker, so if I have linguistic difficulties, trouble coming up with sentences or words, or memory difficulties, trouble remembering my script which is a funny story because it's on my desk. I completely walked out of the house without my script for this morning. It's okay, it's on my iPad, which is my brain anyway. And then, after they've talked to me about this, they look at my wife and they say, have you noticed any personality deficits? Under the guise that I wouldn't notice if aggression, depression, mood swings, whatever. I think this is unfair. But she always gives the same answer. Have you noticed any memory, short-term memory loss? Any... And then they took a look at my wife. Any personality deficits? And she always says none that he didn't already have. <laughs> I don't know if this is a setup. <laughs> they ask the same questions every time. She gives the same answer every time. <laughs> Suffice it to say, I had a right frontal lobectomy in 2008. I am missing the entire right frontal lobe of my brain. I've got about two-thirds of a brain that we're going to go on this morning. And if you're okay with that, I am too. All right? Some people say that me with two-thirds of a brain is better than most. I'm not going to finish. Okay? But it's been a tough year for me. Because I was in remission since 2015 three years, four years, you start to gain some confidence. Okay, I've been through this nine times. I know what it's like. And when it comes back, it's devastating. More for my family than for me. I have a wife and daughter that you see there. She's 11. Um, My daughter is 11. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Key point. All right, where's OSI? All right. Um, We were not prepared for another recurrence this year. Certainly not a stage four recurrence. That's glioblastoma. Does that ring a bell with anybody? No. Yes. Why? It's because it's a death sentence. It's a death sentence. John McCain didn't make it a year. It year. Your sister, how long? Uh,
1: she passed last year. She uh-huh.
0: survived 14 months. Median survival rate for you math geeks out there. Median is like an average. Half survive longer, half survive shorter. Median survival rate is 11 months. I'm at 21 years. How does that happen? Boss has got a plan, right? Maybe it's this. Maybe it's something else. But Boss has got a plan. I'm going on my 21st year full-time fighting brain cancer. Median survival rate is about 11 months. Ted Kennedy didn't make it a year. John McCain didn't make it a year. Most glioblastoma patients are in the 11 to 13-month range. Okay, so we're going to set some new records. I'm in a clinical trial at the National Cancer Institute. Because of that, they do not have another patient on record who has survived half as long as I have. So I'm over 20 years, there's not another patient on record at the National Cancer Institute who has survived for 10 that's interesting to them it's interesting to me what's different about me <laughs> what did I do right or wrong <laughs> maybe I should have been long gone ten years ago and uh, boss is just waiting for me to finish um, I don't know but we'll talk more about that it's been a rough year and I want to talk to you about suffering what suffering looks like to different people my kind of suffering I have suffered Arguably more than just about anybody I know. In a way. I'll tell you about my friend Mo, guy I worked with for four years at NORAD. I retired out of the mountain just a couple years ago. His brother was an army ranger, killed in combat in Afghanistan. When Mo's sister heard that her brother had been killed in action, she committed suicide. When Mo's mother heard that she had lost two of her three children in the same day, she had a heart attack and died. Five weeks later, he lost his six month old son in a drowning accident. Mo lost his brother, his sister, his mother, and his son in about a month. Do I know suffering? Do I know what it's like to suffer? In a way, Mo's never had cancer. Mo's never had chemo. Most of you, I expect, here have never had cancer or chemo, though I have never spoken to an audience without fellow survivors. I did 220 dates last year, and every audience had fellow cancer survivors. Mo knows a kind of suffering I'm never going to know, I hope. I know a kind of suffering that Mo's never going to know. I hope. And every one of you here is suffering with something. It may not be cancer, it may not be the loss of a child, but every one of you knows suffering. If you have your Bibles, I want to try to help you understand why God allows suffering. This is probably the most frequent question I get as I talk around the country. I got 44 states done, I'm almost ready. To retire again. So, God gives us a lot of clues into why He allows suffering into our lives. He allows suffering into many lives throughout Scripture. Some examples are more obvious than others. But there was a devotional that I was going through as I was diagnosed with my fifth brain tumor, grade four, and it was almost as though, as I said earlier in the talk, God stepped in. He said, I got. Something for you. May not be a perfect answer. I'll throw it at you and we'll see what sticks. Um, woohoo, advance, morning session, that's me. Okay, this is where we're going to go. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Okay, to give you the context here, Paul has been traveling throughout Asia Minor, spreading the gospel to the Gentiles probably with Barnabas and Timothy, or both at various times. He has been imprisoned, and Timothy is back at the church at Corinth. Timothy eventually led the church at Ephesus, but he started leading the church at Corinth. He hears from Timothy that things are not going well, that there are factions developing, that there are false teachers, that there are disagreements, about numerous things, sexual immorality, uh, biblical authenticity, scripture. And Paul writes back to Timothy this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Has anyone ever been there? I was there this last year, just in the last six months. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. So that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Which I've received five times. The sentence of death. Then the hard part, but this happened, some translations actually say, but God allowed it, but this happened that we might rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again, for on him we have set our hope. Think about that for a little bit. We're going to walk through each step because each step is going to give you a little bit of a clue as to why God allows suffering in your life. First step. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. We're going to go to Acts 14 and we're going to see what Paul is talking about. Paul gives us a very clear example of the kind of pressure he was under when he refers to it in 1 Corinthians. Okay? Now, in Acts 14, Paul is on his first missionary journey. There is a triumvirate of cities in Lower Asia Minor, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. These are three cities that were primarily ruled by Romans and Gentiles that Paul, as the missionary to the Romans and Gentiles, was called to share the gospel with. First city he goes to, you're going to be in Acts 14, probably around verse 18, 19, 20. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. He goes to Lystra. Where is the first place he goes? In fact, every city that he goes to, where is the first place he goes? To the synagogue. Why? Where Jesus went first to- That's where Jesus went first. This is a great answer. Why else? That's where the Jews are. These are the people that we're trying to get to the Jews and the Gentiles. First stop is going to be the synagogue. Okay? He goes to the synagogue, and what do they do? You can read ahead if you need to. It's not test time yet. There's no test. They form a mob and they chase him out of town. And in those days, they don't just run you out of town. What did they do? They stoned him, dragged him outside the city gates and left him for dead. Why would they stone him? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Why would they drag him outside the city gates? That's where, you execute. That's where you would take dead bodies, especially before the Sabbath. You don't want to have to treat the body and do the herbs. And it, so just get him outside the city gates, and we don't have to worry about treating the body or doing all of the ceremonial stuff. So, we're going to stone him to death. We're going to drag the dead body outside the city gates and just leave him. Would that qualify as something that would be difficult to endure? What's our verse say? Yeah. We were stressed beyond our ability to endure. My friends, what does Paul do? <laughs> Verse twenty-one. He gets back up and goes back into the city. How many of you would be Barnabas in this situation, <laughs> Paul? I um, hate to bring it up, hate to be a nudge, but they just stoned us and left us for dead. We're we're going back. Yeah, I'd be Barnabas. Why don't you scout it out? I'll hang here and start the fire. Don't underestimate how, how, how important this is. What's on Paul's mind? Stoned and left for dead? What's on Paul? What's Paul thinking when he gets up after being stoned and left for dead and wants to go back into the city? They need the gospel. There's people there who haven't heard the gospel yet. Timothy, we got, or Barnabas, we got got work to do. What? Does that not strike anyone else as just incredible that Paul would think, not only that, if you keep reading in Acts chapter 14, what do they do then? They run him out of the city again. And what does he do again? He goes back into the city again. What is this telling us about why God allows suffering in our lives? I'm an endurance specialist. This is what I do. Pick any picture. Ironman, triathlons, marathons, ultras. This is my daily life. Dozens and dozens of marathons and tries and other stuff. I don't look at right now, this last surgery, I lost 34 pounds in 13 days. That's hard to get back when you're an endurance athlete. Because that's not fat. That's all lean muscle mass, and it just does not come back easily. So I'm still down about 31 pounds from where I was before surgery on March 11th. was my last surgery. But I'm an endurance specialist. I'm with Paul on this. In fact, I think Paul was a runner. Anybody else with me? (laughs) Who all knows their scriptures? Let us run with perseverance. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. There's at least five verses in the New Testament where Paul references running. Paul was a runner. Okay? I'm a runner. I'm an endurance guy. A couple different kinds of endurance that we can talk about. This was my fourth brain surgery with my mother and father. This was the lobectomy. This is where they took the right frontal lobe. Uh, No one was sure what we were going to get on the other side of the OR. You never are. Am I going to know who my wife is? Am I going to know who I am? Uh, Am I going to be able to feed myself, wipe myself, walk, stand? You don't know. You go under anesthesia in pre-op and you have no idea what the other side of the OR is going to look like. My first brain surgery, my wife married into this. So I was already a diagnosed terminal cancer patient when she agreed to my proposal. So I'm going to saddle this young 24-year-old picture of health with taking care of a vegetable for the rest of her life? I don't know. And we had those talks. Those are hard talks. Maybe we should put our plans on hold until we see what the other side of the OR looks like. She wouldn't have it. She wouldn't even discuss it. No. I'm in. Committed from the start. It's an incredible... It's a whole different talk I give about my wife, and I give it with my wife. But uh, she was pretty incredible. So were my parents. Um, Made it through that one, too. So not only were we stressed beyond our ability to endure... And we saw an example from Paul about what he's talking about outside the streets of Lystra. But what else? Really wish my notes weren't on my desk. But it's all right. Yeah. Pressure or stress beyond our ability to endure. Hmm. Why would Paul go back in? Ask you again. It's in the text. If you're at verse twenty-one, it's there. And it's a little bit it's a little bit of a gut check. Why did Paul go back into Lystra after being stoned and left for dead and back into Iconium, where the mob had pursued him? specifically states that the reason he went back its exactly right and one got it I can just see the sleeve sorry to strengthen the souls of the disciples and to encourage them to continue in the faith another question who is he talking about is he talking about Timothy back in Corinth is he talking about Barnabas still outside the gates When he says that he went back into the city to strengthen the souls of the disciples and to encourage them in their faith, who is he talking about? Us. In this room. For us. To encourage our faith. To strengthen our souls as an example for us. Sure, he's following Christ's example and it's not that we follow Paul's example but he's got that thought process that we just talked about with regard to going back into Lystra. There's people who haven't heard the gospel yet. So when you walk out of this room today are you going to have that same perspective? There's people who haven't heard the gospel yet. Where are they? That's where I'm going. That's what Paul's thinking about. So we're going to get to some hardcore points here in just a minute about why God allows suffering in our lives. I remember very vividly this last recurrence, which was stage 4 glioblastoma. Um, We had gotten a bit complacent, I guess is the best word for it. Um, let ourselves hope a little bit. Four years of remission. Five years of remission. At four years, you're full remission. I've heard that before. Five years, you're cancer free. I've heard that before. So, going into this appointment a couple years ago, five years of remission, I'm officially cancer free. This is another check in the box. I do it every 90 days. She doesn't even come with me anymore. It's 79 miles up to Denver. It's a pain. I go up. I have my MRI. It's clear. I go home. We've done this for years. Until it's not clear. And then all of a sudden, it's not so much fun anymore. So we had gotten a bit complacent. She wasn't coming with me to appointments anymore. I go up. I do my scan. I do my neuro exam. And I go home. And we've done this for years. And all of a sudden, it's not clear. She knows, within about five minutes of not receiving a text, that something's wrong. If she doesn't get an all-clear text from me, within about 15 minutes of the scan, she knows. We've been doing this a long time. I remember walking out of the MRI with the news from the neuroradiologist, sitting on one of the benches in the hallway, sobbing. Not for my own fate. I'm okay with that. How do I tell her? I had 79 miles. And I drove home 79 miles, rehearsing in my head how I was going to tell my wife that it's back, and it's grade four, and we're going back into surgery, and back into infusion, back into chemo, and that's where we are today. I pulled into my driveway with 79 miles of nothing, nothing. I had nothing. I walked into the house, I remember this like it was yesterday, and I collapsed on the floor at my wife's feet in the fetal position just rocking and crying, sobbing, completely broken for the first time in my life, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually broken. I had nothing. I couldn't even stand. And I'm rocking in the fetal position at my wife's feet. She knows. She knew before I walked in the door. Here we go again. Let me tell you one other short story. I just don't want you to be impressed with my petty achievements. I want this to reflect back on Paul and Christ. The Seattle Marathon in 2010 was not a good day for me. If you've ever run a marathon, if you're an endurance athlete, if you've ever done anything like it, a try, a century ride, you name it, you've been there. Nine miles in... I have these horrible leg cramps where I can't even bend my knees or my hamstrings cramp nine miles into the Seattle Marathon so I'm walking and I get to the nine-mile aid station and I just sit I'm done there's there's no way and I'm sitting and those who have ever done anything like this before know that there's a bus that follows Not the last runner, but follows usually at about the six-hour mark, picking up runners who can't finish or who aren't keeping pace. And at this point, there are many runners whose whole goal in a marathon and they wear t-shirts that say, beat the bus. Just (laughs) beat the bus. That's my only goal. (laughs) So I sit down at the nine-mile aid station and I am just going to wait for the bus. That's all I can do. I can't walk, let alone run and I started to think about Paul in Acts 14 sitting in the sand outside of I think it's Lystra at that point it's not Iconium yet he didn't wait for the bus right he got up and went back into the city and I really started to think about that I had never not finished a marathon before a DNF on your record when you're a marathon or triathlon No DNF. Well, shoot. (laughs) Because I really don't want to get up. And I did, thinking about Paul. And I walked 17 miles to the finish line. And I finished. But I don't want you to be impressed with my petty achievements. We're going to take this back to Paul. The sentence of death has been passed. Hmm. Why do I have to go through this again? If I'm sitting at the nine-mile aid station in the Seattle Marathon, or if I'm curled up on the floor at my wife's feet at home trying to figure out a way to tell her that it's back again, there's got to be a reason. Come on now, anybody ever been there? Other people have suffered in other ways. Maybe it's not cancer. Maybe it's not loss of a child. Maybe it's something else. You're all there. You're going to face this. You may be out there thinking, well, I don't have cancer. What does this message mean to me? You've got something. Addiction, depression, diabetes, dependency, you name it, you've got something that you're suffering through. Every single person in this room. Let me make an attempt at telling you why God allows suffering in your life. Oh, I'm behind on my slides. Look at me. Those are some good pictures, aren't they? Yep, 15-inch incision, 54 staples. Radiation, chemo. This is what it actually looks like if you're curious. I don't know how many of you have photographic evidence that you have a brain. (laughs) I do. This is clearly the cavity left by my first brain surgery. Okay? They took almost the whole right frontal lobe. This is the scan that sent me back for my second brain surgery. Do you see it? It's this here. That's a sizable 2.8 centimeters for you sports fans a little bigger than a golf ball a little smaller than a tennis ball this is a recurrence of the tumor that sent me back for my second brain surgery the second brain surgery was a lobectomy they go straight down the center and over took the whole right frontal lobe didn't matter came back six months later and I'm still here but why are you not at some point stricken with the why question No matter what you're facing. Maybe it's not brain cancer. Whatever it is. Job had it. He made a big mistake of asking it. Okay, If you haven't been in Job recently, eventually Job gets so frustrated that he asks the why question. God starts his answer with, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That is a paraphrase of... Who are you to question me? And you realize that God goes on for five chapters. Chapters rebuking Job for questioning. God forbid I be that guy. But you want to know. And you seek out these answers. Now I received the sentence of death five times, if you want to look at it that way. Um, This is actually the cell that they believe Paul was held in in the prison at Philippi. Okay? Um, you can look at these slides closer later, or chaplain will send them out. It's interesting to see the bed that they lay on that has a cavity carved in it into a hole in the ground. And you can do the math of what that's for. You just want to point the right direction. We had received the sentence of death. Okay? Yeah, got time for another story? How are we on time, Mark? We good? Yeah, we're good. Yep, we yep, fine. Okay. Um, for decades, literally, I had been able to avoid the why question. I had focused on avoiding the why question. There are no good answers. I've, in fact, done exercises where I have gone through every single verse in Scripture that talks about suffering. You realize that God never once answers why? And I've got the notes if you want me to share them with you. You know what he does? In every example I could find, he answers with who he is and what he's doing. He never tells you why. He doesn't tell Job. He doesn't tell Paul. Who he is and what he's doing. So Paul had received the sentence of death. I had received the sentence of death. <clears throat> Let me tell you a little bit about the 48th Regiment. They had one job in World War II. 48th Regiment had one job, and their only job was to hold Manila. Now, there's not a lot of talk about the Philippines when we talk about World War II, but they were a significant player. Holding Manila was, in some views, equivalent to holding Normandy. If we, can't, if we can't breach Normandy, we lose Europe. Well, we lose England. And if we lose England, we lose Europe. Many people looked at the 48th Regiment in the Philippines in the same way. If we can't hold Manila, we lose the Philippines. And if we lose the Philippines, we've lost the Pacific. Forty-eighth Regiment had one job. Forty-eighth Regiment had one chaplain, named Chaplain Robert Preston Taylor. Forty-eighth Regiment was obliterated at Manila by the Japanese. There were only a, several thousand who survived, and the Japanese didn't know what to do with the survivors. Does anybody know what they did or remember? Baton. Baton. There is a death camp in a prison camp in the Philippines at Bataan. It is a long way from Manila. How are we going to handle this? Well, there's a great win-win here. We'll march them to Bataan. Most will die. Problem solved. So the Philippine or the uh, Japanese who won the Battle of Manila marched the survivors from Manila to Bataan the famous Bataan Death March. Chaplain Robert Preston Taylor was one of them who made that march. He was one of a very few who survived. And he became the chaplain for the prison camp at Bataan. He was found to be sneaking food and water to marchers along Bataan. So when he got to the prison camp, he was placed in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement in a Philippine or a Japanese prison camp is called a hot box. It's a bamboo box, four foot by five foot, specifically designed to be just small enough that you can neither stand nor lie down. Maximum discomfort, slats between the bamboo, just big enough to let the bugs in but not the air. Most people who were confined to solitary confinement in Japanese prison camp succumbed to malaria, dysentery, or insanity, within three to four days. Three to four days. As chaplain Taylor as Chaplain Taylor entered, stay with me, his seventh month in the bamboo hot box, he heard a rustle outside the door two Japanese guards had brought another young man who he nicknamed Benny to the door and threw him in. And now we have Chaplain Taylor and Benny, two men confined to a solitary space not large enough for a single man to stand. Chaplain Taylor wrote a book called Days of Anguish, Days of Hope where he tells this story that he praised God for Betty because he had someone to share the gospel with. Benny was not a believer. So rather than curse or complain that he now had half the room or you can imagine the sleep or bodily functions or anything else, he praised God because he had someone to share the gospel with. Chaplain Taylor lived, as did Benny. When Chaplain Taylor and Benny and others were liberated, they asked Chaplain Taylor to give a sermon, impromptu. I would normally read it to you, just in the interest of time. I will tell you, he stood before the entire camp, leaning on a bamboo cane. He hadn't stood in months. And he preached a sermon that will bring a tear to every eye. The way he ended it, he said... We will not fight alone because God is here with us. After seven months in solitary with Benny. He eventually led Benny to Christ and in his book, Days of Anguish, Days of Hope he says that he believes he survived solitary for one reason. Only one reason. Do I need to tell you? Benny. Who is your Benny? Who is that one person God is giving you to lead to his son? Who is your reason for being? It's the reason Chaplain Taylor got up every morning. Benny needs Christ. What do you think became of Chaplain Taylor? Does anyone know? Especially my army chaplains. Sir, I know that uh, when he went, was repatriated, went home. Um, he was married, and his wife, having thought that he was dead, um, moved on and, and married someone else. She, she left him. She he did. Yep. And, uh, and did not. Yeah. And kept that. One. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Um. Let me give you the punchline. In 1964, at the recommendation of General Curtis LeMay, sorry, Air Force guy, um, John F. Kennedy appointed Major General Robert Preston Taylor as the U.S. Air Force Chief of Chaplains. So he didn't just live, he thrived. And he led Benny to Christ. And I bet if you were to ask him today Which do you think is a more significant achievement? Two stars and the chief of chaplains? I doubt it. I bet he's going to think back to Benny in the hot box. All right. Let me bring this story to a close and tell you why I think God allows suffering in our lives. First and foremost, I think he allows us to suffer because Christ suffered. We are commanded, not just called, we are commanded to conform to Christ-likeness. We cannot be like Christ unless we suffer, because Christ suffered. Does that make sense, at least on the surface? God will allow us to suffer because it conforms us to Christ-likeness. Okay? Couple of scriptures, if you want to write them down. This is a tough one. It's right out of our verse from 2 Corinthians 1, right? That says, God allowed it that we might rely on Him and not on ourselves. Do you remember that? God allows us to suffer because suffering actually brings us closer to God. C.S. Lewis calls suffering God's megaphone. C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain that he whispers to us in our pleasures and screams at us in our pains. When God really wants to get through to you, when he wants to communicate with you, when he wants to change you, when he wants to conform you to Christlikeness, he's not going to use pleasure. I'm conformed. Holy cow. It's okay. But suffering brings us closer to God. Does that make sense so far as well? God will allow suffering in your life to conform you to Christ-likeness, to bring you closer to Him. Here's a hard one. Suffering may be the ultimate evangelistic tool. Let's look at a couple examples. The adulteress, the blind man, the leper, so on and so on. Those are just three examples that came to my mind. You can probably think of more. Especially if you look at the church fathers, Irenaeus, Clement, Polycarp. These church fathers, let's just look at the biblical examples. In all three of these cases the adulteress, the blind man, and the leper, what did they do after Christ healed them? So he forgave the adulteress, he healed the blind man, he healed the leper. What did they do? Just take the example of the woman caught in adultery. Went, and told. Went back and told everyone is the exact phraseology for the woman caught in adultery. Went back and told every. What did she tell everyone? Jesus could have healed leprosy. He could have eradicated leprosy entirely. But he didn't. What did he do? He healed the leper. He could have eradicated blindness. But he didn't. What did he do? He healed the blind man. He could have eradicated adultery so that it would never happen again. But he didn't. What did he do? He forgave the adulteress. Why? If you have the opportunity to eradicate blindness or get rid of leprosy forever or... Because it is the ultimate evangelistic tool. In every case, these three people went back and told everybody they knew about this guy, Jesus, who's here in town, and look what he did. And the gospel starts to spread, and people are going to come back, and where's this Jesus guy, and maybe he can heal me too. And it becomes the ultimate evangelistic tool. Maybe not suffering specifically, I know there's some... I'm playing a little fast and loose with the words here. But their response to suffering... Or their response to Christ's healing of their suffering. Now, for whatever reason, I may die not knowing, He has chosen not to heal me. That troubles me. Why not me? I mean, throw a man a bone. I mean, and this last, this fifth recurrence. Imagine my shoes. Come on, boss. I mean, you pick on somebody else, or I, what could you possibly teach me, going through this a fifth time, that you didn't teach me the first four times? You, you struggle through this, and you say, "Boss, I why? Why me? Can't pick on somebody? You get a little snarky with the boss sometimes. I know you all do. <laughs> Don't deny it. And um, can't you just pick on some just one time?" I just my daughter just turned 11 I just retired from the Air Force we're going to Europe in October and you're gonna throw stage four brain cancer at me again that's hard that's real Um, and you get a little snarky sometimes and you can't it's understandable but start looking at these reasons and say, wait, he is conforming me to Christ-likeness, he is bringing me closer to him, and he is giving me tremendous evangelistic power. What are you complaining about? Yeah, yeah chemo sucks. I'm here to tell you, 29 times, and I was supposed to start yesterday. Is that Monday? Yeah. So we actually, I actually delayed chemo a week to come here. Thank you for helping me. to. Okay. This is what this is just one person's perspective on why God allows suffering into your life. Every one of you may have a different perspective. You may be able to add to the list. This is one verse parsed out. Right? 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. Two verses or three. Okay? The greatest part and the greatest promise we end with is the end of that 2 Corinthians 8 through 10. He has delivered us. Oh, by the way, I don't want to skip one of the most important parts where he says, um, who raises the dead. Somebody paraphrase that for me. No one's ever gotten this right, but I, I like my paraphrase of it. But of God who raises the dead. What's he saying? What? What? I think I heard it. God do anything. Who can do anything? First time ever someone's gotten the same paraphrase that I get from it. When he says and a God who raises the dead. He may be talking specifically about the resurrection of Christ, which had just happened, probably weeks prior. He may be talking about the ultimate resurrection that we will all experience, similar to Christ's. But I think it's more than that. I think it's almost a metaphor for He can do anything. He can raise the dead is not really a resurrection reference as much as it is a a, a reference to omniscience and omnipotence. God can do anything. He could heal me from cancer. He could do it right now as I stand here. Why hasn't He? I struggle with this 20 years. Let me give you my real quick answer. What a tremendous testament to God's saving grace and power. For me to be able to stand up here and say it is because of this man that I stand before you healed. It's almost the same words Peter used. What a tremendous testimony to his saving grace and power. If I could stand up here healed. But pause. Is it perhaps even more powerful for me to stand before you not healed? But still in faith. He has chosen not to heal me, yet will I trust in him. And back to Job, though he slay me, cancer will kill me, friends. If that's not obvious to you yet, I'm here to tell you. Cancer will one day take my life, but not today. Not today. So I'm going to fight today. Talk to me tomorrow. Okay? There is no suffering that you will ever experience that is greater than the suffering that Christ felt when He was beaten and crucified. There is no grief that you will ever feel that is greater than the grief that Christ felt when the Father momentarily turned away from Him on the cross. And there is no burden that you will ever bear greater than the burden of every sin that ever has been or ever will be committed. Jesus Christ knows what you're going through because He's been through it. Whatever you're dealing with, suffering, grief, burden, Christ has been there and He's been through it. There is no other religion, there is no other relationship that claims the same. He knows. And he may call you to walk with him through the Garden of Eden. Or he may call you to cry with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you must be equally willing, Christian, to do both. Are you? That's a hard question. They're very different gardens. Part one. Questions, comments. I didn't caveat this first. I decided I'd save it for the break, but just so you know the way I run, um, the way I operate. uh, I am an open book. Ask me anything. 30 years. The chances that you are going to ask me a question I have never been asked before is near zero. The chances that you are going to offend me or bother me or upset me is precisely zero. You can ask me about cancer, about survivorship, about ministry, about the Air Force. You can ask me how I got so good looking, who does my hair. <laughs> why Why do people laugh when I say that? I do my hair, by the way. Yes, sir. Michael, thank you for coming. Sir you with your 21 years of experience to that individual who's just received the diagnosis of glioblastoma and probably they're in shock but you mean you what do you say to that person fight 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 um, so there you will hear the long answer to that question in part two which is three things faith family and fitness that's the entire focus of part two's message in 15 minutes or so faith family and fitness I don't care honestly what you're facing maybe it's glioblastoma and you were just diagnosed I gave you another list addiction depression dependency diabetes obesity whatever I don't care I hate that word but what you're facing you approach that with a firm faith the support of your family and friends and physical fitness, you'll beat it. I don't care what it is, you'll beat it. And I'm standing here as a testament to that. If I did not have a firm faith, the support of my family and friends, and fitness, I'd have been dead 20 years ago. That's not a, that's, that's not a metaphor or whatever the right word is. I mean, that's literal. I would have died. It is only because of my faith, my family, and my fitness, my health, that I'm even standing. So, whatever you're facing, bring me a brand new glioblastoma diagnosis. Bring me anything else on that list addiction, depression, dependency, diabetes, obesity. A firm faith, the support of your family and friends, and physical fitness. You'll beat it.